Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Vantage Point, where the vantage is the point. I'm Troy Jennings, an actor, teacher, and content creator. And I am Aaron Pope, a connector, cultural specialist, and Bible enthusiast. On this podcast, we share our viewpoints in a way that adds value to your life and encourages you to be the best version of yourself. On last week's episode, we talked about negativity bias, its origins and strategies we can all use to manage it. Today, we'll be talking about The Amen Corner, a play published in 1954 by James Baldwin, and it's currently playing at the Shakespeare Theatre Company in D.C. through September 26. The play is directed by Whitney White. It stars Mia Ellis as Margaret Alexander. Roz White plays her sister, Odessa. Antonio Michael Woodard plays David, her son. Chike Johnson plays Luke, Margaret's estranged husband. And Ife Butler plays Sister Moore. This play is a joy to watch. And for me, it was a joy to be back in the theater. It's great that theaters are opening back up again. And for me, theater is always home. It felt like being home. So I was really glad to be able to witness this play. And as a side note for us, this is our second time seeing the play. We actually saw it before uh, about 18 months ago when before the lockdown and shutdowns happened before COVID became, you know, the COVID that we know it to be. But it was great to see it again. And we're praying that COVID doesn't shut us down again. <laughs> yes, I'm definitely praying for that. And I Definitely a shout out to the Shakespeare Theater Company in D.C. A lot of great protocols were being followed. They require proof of vaccination. You have to wear your mask the whole time. And it's an adjustment. But this is the new norm for the foreseeable future when we're going to these events, whether they be concerts, music concerts, theater. This is the new norm. You're going to have to show proof of vaccination. But it felt very orderly, very organized. It felt uh, safe. And, you know, again, it was just really great to be back in the theater. And theater is one of our oldest art forms. And it's what greater way to be united again than in that kind of space. But the play is awesome. I mean, as soon as you go into the theater, the set is amazing. The acting, it's a really strong ensemble, strong cast. Um, what did you think? What are some of the things you uh, think about when you overall about the play? I would suggest that for me, it was better the second time. Not that it wasn't good the first time. I enjoyed it tremendously, but there are characters, um, particularly um, Ife Butler, who plays uh, Sister Moore, and just just extraordinary acting. It, it They have evolved, and sometimes you can do something so long or for a time and it gets stale, but I would suggest it got better. I definitely agree. It was really fun. Even sometimes night to night, a play can change, but it was cool seeing it 18 months ago and seeing it now, because I definitely do agree. I, it was a deepening of the portrayals. There was a groundedness. It was, you know, I wish there was almost a talk back because I would love to ask the actors, how does it feel to be doing this? Now, it must be so sentimental and emotional in a sense, because a lot of actors have been either unemployed or they've been doing things virtually. So to be back connected with each other, but then also with a live audience, that has to be an emotional kind of moment. And yeah, Ife Butler, she's a favorite in this region. She's known for great larger than life portrayals, a wonderful, beautiful voice. And her portrayal of Sister Moore is hilarious, really hilarious. She's a standout for sure. 
And I would even say that even being back in the theater, it was good to see that people are responding to it, that they are in the building, that they were present. Uh, it was, you know, for the most part, a pretty packed house. And that was good to see that people are supporting, you know, the arts in that kind of way. And again, yes, the, it, the play has grown in a tremendous way. Please, man, please, sir, if you have an opportunity to, um, visit and see it please do it is a a must see absolutely and that's one thing too the play does a good job of bringing in the audience so it's almost like you feel you're a part of the congregation they do a good job of pulling us in and the audience was right there with the characters at every moment you heard a couple of amens i felt like i was really in church for a moment there you heard a couple of amens and then a couple of unnecessary amens right <laughs> but it was so it was it was a um engaging experience to you know you weren't the only one who said mm, or preach or uh-huh like it was church it was it was a congregational uh play and that's very rare um particularly in church and watching church and seeing how church has become very, very virtual. It was as if they didn't even know what virtual church was. They mm -hmm. had picked back up on that whole, when you come to service, you know, you in service. I would even suggest down to, you know, people dress up for the theater, but I would suggest they came ready for church. Not, right. They have hats and carrying on, but they came ready to, you know, this is church. This is sacred. This is an opportunity. And it was just good to experience. It is. And, you know, this play, of course, again, it takes place in the 1950s in Harlem, New York, in church. So in that time period, most people are going to come with their Sunday best on. And as us watching it now, one, a lot of us are acclimated to virtual church during this time period. It was all, of course, in person. There was no internet. There was te no technology. So it's interesting watching it, even from 18 months ago, watching it now, it's quite different. With We uh, are learning now to have different type of worship services. And so it's just an interesting, interesting time period we're in and interesting reflecting back on that time period. Church was the same in some ways, but quite different in other ways. James Baldwin is brilliant. You know, many of us know how prolific he is with his work and his writing. And it's clear to me, he does have a critique of the church and a critique of people who maybe present themselves to be holy or self-righteous. But there's also a great amount of reverence and respect he has for the house of God. And I think that is very prevalent throughout the play. There is a care that he has in his writing and how he's portraying these characters. They're not stereotypes. They are human beings. And I think there is a, a love that is an undercurrent of everything that is presented here. And I think that definitely shows through. What do you think? As somebody who is in leadership in church and not just a church, but churches and having an actual role and responsibility, um, a, a title and all that unnecessary stuff. It is um, pleasant to watch someone have a clean critique. And when I say a clean critique, I mean, there is no bitterness. There is no harshness. There is no um, offense that comes to discredit or uh, mismanage. Uh, how the church is portrayed. And that's one of the things that I appreciated about James Baldwin depiction of the amen corner. He takes the, like you said, the care 
to say, you know, I have this opportunity to showcase things that are a concern for me, but not in in ill, not from an ill pocket. You can obviously tell based on watching it that he has come to a place of healing to where he can talk about it to the point where the critiques don't come off um, as critiques, but they come off as these are things we should be mindful of as we move forward. Definitely things to be mindful of. And this is clearly someone who wrote it from a perspective of I am in church. I've been involved in this my whole life. So you can't write something like this and not know the intricacies of how church works and the dynamics of church. I think he was fair in how he presented a lot of the issues that arise in the play. If we start from the beginning with Pastor Margaret Alexander, one of the things I have here about her is, you know, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. I think that's something that echoes in my mind when I think about her character, because in the beginning, when she is preaching, she's preaching against a lot of things that people shouldn't do and how people should live a holy life. But as the play does unfold, we see that there are things that she's experienced in her life that make her human. Like we all are. We all have our moments where we make mistakes or where we could do better or we could be better. And it was easy for her perhaps to see in other people what they weren't, but not necessarily for her to share. I am also human, just like just like you are. But it, it doesn't paint her too harshly because it also says that from the other side, these other uh, church members and church elders, they're kind of very harsh on her as well. And they're not very forgiving and, they, and they're not able to see her in her humanity. Part of that is because of, you know, their expectations, which may be false. And also a little bit of that's how she presented herself as someone who pointed the finger at other people. And so she seemed that she was above reproach, which made it kind of easy, I guess, for people to uh, have these expectations in her and then to be let down greatly because they, they thought she was supposed to be spotless and clean. And that becomes the hardship of ministry, speaking personally as somebody who is ordained in the Lord's church. One of the hardships of ministry is being yourself and not just that it's a hardship, but there is a certain criteria that the people put on you that God doesn't even put on you. <laughs> and it's the ability to manage the two. The, the ability to say, I'm not above reproach, but at the same time, God is calling us to step up. Um, one of the things that I always suggest, particularly when I articulate a hard word, what I would call a hard word, and that's a gut punch to the stomach where you, the uh, conviction comes in and you are challenged to the point. I always say at the end of those kinds of moments that uh, I was hit first. And not only was I hit first, but I was hit again because when you speak of correction, you've got to examine yourself, number one. But then when you articulate that moment so other people can see the correction, you've got to hear it again. And one of the things that I was able to resonate with Pastor Mark about was, uh, one, just it's not that I don't have mess. <laughs> it's that my mess isn't profitable to you. And sometimes we get prideful. And when I say we, I'm speaking of uh, people in church. Sometimes we get prideful because we have the ability to conceal what we um, are going through or dealing with, particularly in leadership. And titles don't make you exempt. Titles don't take away 
your flaws. They don't take away your mishaps. They don't take away anything that you experience. And one of the best things that you can do is be able to articulate or give people room to still be human. Now, if they be a messy, that's another story. <laughs> but if there are opportunities where you can say, okay, that makes sense. We've all been there before because the truth is we've all been there before. The only difference is God has utilized us in a platform and a place to speak to uh, correction about the places we've been. What I will also suggest is for the time, it was incredible that he even had a woman yeah. <laughs> being portrayed at, because that's still an argument to this day, should and could women preach. And that is a huge opportunity to showcase um, how forward thinking he even was in the time. Yeah, I would be interested to research that. And I know it did exist, but you know, I'm of that paradigm when I grew up in a particular church paradigm I grew up where women were not allowed to preach. They weren't even allowed to be in the pulpit. They had to be on the floor and when they were speaking. And when I first saw the play, knowing the time period it took place in, I thought, wow, like you said, it's really forward thinking that, okay, it existed, but I'm going to point this out in this story that this woman is leading this particular church. And I think that is, is fascinating. And to your point as well, like when you were, you were saying that you know, I am in there with you all as well, I think that sometimes for me in my experience growing up in church, that it, there was not a level of transparency that perhaps is seen today. I was listening to someone recently and they were saying that in this generation, we want a leader who is a bit more transparent. So it seems that they go through things as well, that they hurt too, that they may be challenged in some way too. Whereas an older generation, you may not have known as much about the pastor, or it may seem that they have everything together, which is interesting because if you have everything together, like, where's the need for, for God in that? If, if you come across as I'm perfect and I'm just pointing the finger at you, instead of like us, we all need this. It's not just me saying that, you all fell short and you all did this, but I've also um, fallen short as well. And I would even go as far as to say we've got to get to a place where we stop putting uh, mandates or criteria on people who are just like us. Just because um, people are called doesn't mean they don't come with complications and that we've got to stop putting the men and women of God on the pedestal. To the point, and I'm not saying don't honor them. We should always honor the men and women of God. The Bible speaks of how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel because it's an intention that God even honors the call. But at the same time, as people, we've got to get to a place where we stop pushing people or making it a mandate to say your life should be perfect, knowing good and well, if I'm just as human as you are, it may not be that way and or may not be that way, but will not be that way. That every now and again, my foot might slip every now and again now and again, you know, things may transpire that you would suggest that I should know better. Everybody has a level of a flaw or a level to where they're just trying to be better as you are. The only difference is uh, they've been given insight as to how to utilize that or tools or strategies to um, be better. But that doesn't make them exempt. Yeah, it definitely doesn't make them exempt. One of the things in the play is the short-term memory. It seems a lot of the, the elders in the church had because one of the things that kind of shifts the play in another direction is that Margaret's estranged husband comes back into the picture. 
And it was perpetuated by her that her husband had left her, but it turns out that she, in many ways, had left him. And that was a level of of dishonesty with how she was uh, you know, sharing her experience. And one thing led to another, and the elders uh, saw fit that they needed to have a meeting to have her removed from the church. And one of the things that her sister Odessa really speaks about is, one, how could you all do this? And two, have you forgotten all the things that she's done? That, okay, maybe she could have done some things better, but does that negate everything else that she's invested and put into this church? And I think that was a a challenging moment that the entirety of her good work can be marred by a moment. And Mm -hmm. we can see that today, especially with cancel culture. This is almost pre-cancel culture. That's church. Church invented the cancel culture. (laughs) I would go as far as to suggest and say that that didn't come from millennials. You all are late. (laughs) The church has invented cancel culture in the sense that they are willing to throw you way under the bus for an accident and or a mistake. What I will also say on the flip side of that is sin is sin, and we must be postured to be humble about that. I think that one of the detriments that even Pastor Margaret had experienced in the play was that she didn't deal with it with humility. It was, I did this and I did this to be strong. And the truth is that should come from a humble place that even if you are uh, in a place where you have this issue, have this flaw, have whatever you want to call it, there is still a moment to where you should deal with that delicately, not um, self-righteous or prideful. Yeah, I think there's definitely a correct way to be able to handle that a certain kind of decorum in order to to carry yourself with when you're dealing with those kind of situations. Because a, apology goes a long way. Uh, and I'm sorry, or I missed the mark, or my bad. It, w- it will go a long way. Um, we'd be surprised how forgiving people will be if we take the lead on it and say, but to be asked to give an apology, even in culture now, people have to be begged to give an apology. <laughs> they got to, oh, I got, I'm coming back and doubling down and this, that, and the other. And then I'm, they, they'll apologize. No, if you start out with the apology, my bad, I messed up. I fell short here. It is easier to be received. It is easier to be heard. It is easier to move forward. And one of the things that I like about the play is that it is the moments where we don't take the proper accountability that will stifle moving forward. Yeah, I think accountability and the lack thereof, you definitely see the repercussions of that throughout the play, especially with the the character of of Margaret. And it's all, you know, she presented herself in such a way where you would think that she wouldn't have any kind of flaw. And I think one of the themes of the play that stood out to me was the importance to acknowledge experiences that you've had, to not use religion or God as a crutch for not dealing with things that you may be traumatized by or hurt by. And when we don't do that, we can end up inflicting damage onto other people. There's one scene in the play in particular where this young lady is coming in and her child is um, is sick and she's asking for prayer for her son that so her infant son can be healed. And this young lady says she has a husband and Pastor Margaret basically says, well, where's your husband? And then in so many other words, she also says, maybe you should leave him. She suggests that she should leave him the same way we find out that Pastor Margaret has also left her husband. And so because she's still dealing with 
this own trauma of hers, she's now inflicting this onto uh, onto someone else. She's giving advice or guidance from a place of hurt and brokenness. And so we just have to be careful about making sure that we're cleaning up things that we go through. And I will say, going back to um, one of the original thoughts that we had starting uh, this episode, is that there is a clever dualism by James Baldwin, where he takes the opportunity to say this is an issue, but on the flip side of that. And he does that in almost every scene where he shows or showcases or highlights a moment where the church is flawed, but at the same time, he takes it or utilizes an opportunity to say on the flip side, this is where they got it right. And I think that that is a mature stance to always have when it comes to churches, that there is a dualism, that they are always, we are always um, facing a dualism where we need to posture ourselves to be human and lead. Be human and lead. Yeah. And I think he does definitely highlight those moments where things do work. There is a, a love, there is a respect for uh, the church. And uh, one of the things that stands out, I mean, let's just go there. Also the voices, there's beautiful voices, so many talented singers throughout this place. So joyous. And again, when we incorporate the audience into it as well, you know, people were clapping along with them and they were right with them moment by moment. And so it was great to be a part of that kind of experience. It almost felt like being in church again, having not been in an actual service, done a lot of virtual things. That was almost like my first time back in service. And it was a great experience to have. Everybody was just glad to be there. You know, you felt the you felt church. You really, really felt church, though it was a setup to be a play and in theater. One of the things I can say is I can liken it to when I had the opportunity to see the Christians and in that play, it really felt like church. And that's what it reminded me of another opportunity where it wasn't just a play. It was an opportunity to hear great singing, hear hymns that we knew, uh, just an opportunity to see church in itself and be present for it. Yeah, I would definitely call it a very immersive experience. And I think they really did a good job again of just connecting the audience to what's happening. So we were like, we're very present and live with what's happening on the stage. One thing I will say is I love this particular moment because it speaks to a lot of what happened in the play. And that was there is a moment where uh, she is talking to her estranged husband and they are talking about the son that they have and his future and his career and his uh, next move. And one of the things that she says is she speaks about how she is setting things up for him to take over the church. And the line that she says after she is challenged is he will get the call. And that struck a chord with me only because that's what the generational thinking was at that time. Uh, And that comes from a a paradigm of a Jewish thinking to where if your father was a doctor, you be a doctor. And so I understand it. Um, But one of the things that was a huge moment, and again, he was forecasting, um, is that we've got to posture ourselves to, though our kids may have a call they shouldn't be pressured to do that because that's a decision that they made and or if they do have a call don't cancel out their life 
that they still have growing to do. And so it was interesting to watch her uh, speak of her son in a place where she wanted him to be, but she had excluded his own experience and he just wanted to be a musician. And because of the trauma of her relationship with her estranged husband and just how that unfolded, you see that there is a moment where she wants him to make the same decision she made. And that's not always fair. Let him be who is going to be. Let him grow and develop and mature. Um, and when the call comes, he will answer. I think that sometimes when we see people are called or see that there is a certain kind of gifting, we try to usher in them into that quickly mm. instead of letting life take its course. Because I promise you, when the phone rings, you'll know. It's not a guess. It's not a, you'll know. I think... Again, a lot of things spilled over from her relationship with her estranged husband. In many ways, she did not want him to be him because there was so much she was holding on to from what she felt he was or wasn't. And his father was also a musician. And so one thing in that moment did stand out to me, too, when she said he'll get the call. Again, no matter what, he's going he gonna to get the call. <laughs> uh, but then also, you know, like you said, he also was an inspiring musician. And he wanted to play in the world. He wanted to play secular music. He started out to play as the piano player at the church. And so she wanted him to remain in the church, but his call for him was outside of the four walls of the church. And that was a core, uh, you know, um, a point, a pain point for them and their relationship because she's wanting something for him that he did not want for himself. And I will never forget an opportunity that I had to hear someone say, if everybody in the church is saved, why are we why are we here? <laughs> We've got to go get the ones who aren't. And that can't always happen in the four walls of the church. We have to be given space and room to one, participate in the world that we live in, uh, but two, you know, go after and do certain things and just allow uh, young people or our heirs, our seeds, our futures to grow and develop in ways that they need to, that it won't be the same story that we have. And that's really true because in some ways, in terms of what you're saying about if everyone's in the church saved and what, what are we doing here? Because at some points it did feel like a, a social club in a sense, and uh, kind of like a, a, a click. We're all here. We have our, our favorites and we have our way of operating and the only one who was really an outsider was the young woman who had the, the child who came into the church. And it was really, a, especially the second time that she goes to see the pastor, that was a very heartbreaking scene because things didn't go the way she wanted it them to go. But yeah, it was very interesting dynamics. And at some, in some ways, that kind of fellowship is good, but in some ways it could be challenging because if anyone's out there who doesn't move or function like you do, they may not feel welcome. They may feel judged. They may feel condemned, and they may not want to have any part of this because it seems like you all have your thing going on and, and there's no room for someone to show up like me. And it should be based on in inclusion, your, your ability to include um, to where people don't feel ostracized or don't feel unwelcomed or don't feel like I'm not like them is more stifling than anything else. Uh, I think a lot of times we get caught up in people's story or why they're here or forgetting that we have one of our own. And truth be told, the only difference between you and the person whose story we know is that we don't know yours, which we find evident even in the play. 
with Sister Moore, who swears by the Holy Spirit <laughs> that she has never been touched by a man. Now, 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 we don't know that to be true. Yeah, we don't. But she lives by that truth. And she is postured or has postured herself in the play to where, you know, your story is the highlight now. And she keeps making sure that her story, Pastor Moore's story, is the highlight. And we never hear her, you know, share words of comfort. What I will give uh, Sister Moore credit for is that she does teach um, one of the other uh, deacon's wives how to handle situations. Mm-hmm. I do appreciate James Baldwin's depiction on how he made sure that stuff got heated, but it never got disrespectful. Yeah, And I appreciated that because we think that when stuff gets heated, and I'm guilty of this, I'll put myself out there, um, we, we sometimes think that when things get heated, that that's a card or a call to be disrespectful. And that's not the case, particularly when it comes to the men and women of God. We have to have the ability to have a different opinion, uh, not agree, but not be disrespectful. And I appreciated the, like you said, the delicacy that he had with the church and again that dualism to say i have an issue here but i applaud you here i do like how she diffused that situation you know and she just really said okay we don't have to go there we don't have to go there by and by she's saying to him by and by to the other woman and i think that that is a great moment there's so many dimensions in the character of sister moore and ife butler portrays her brilliantly one there's a great comic relief that she has, but there's also a love, there's a, a care, and we do see a growth. She does undergo a transformation from the beginning of the play into the end of the play in the hands of a lesser actress. It could be a more one-note performance, but I love the dimensions that she finds to not just only play the, uh, the comic relief, but to make her real. Because uh, one of the things I said when I saw Sister Moore when she first gets up in the beginning of the play is, okay, I know someone like that. And I think any of us who have grown up in church or currently in church, you know someone who acts and talks and sings like that. I agree. And I said the same thing. I said, oh, I know who you are. And I almost gave her a name from a, <laughs> a church that <laughs> I've been to or go to. I knew exactly who that person was. But I will also say to uh, Ife Butler's uh, uh, credit and performance, what I loved is that it was good the first time. But mm-hmm. this one was so much more settled. It was so much more. Um, I believed her. If I saw her out in the street, I'd be like, that's somebody's auntie who goes to church every you know, it, it was just unbelievably believable that that's she embodied uh, what um, church women are like or were like at the time, particularly those who are in leadership, um, trying to make decisions, trying to come up with a great. It was just a it was a great performance, even down to her inflections and mm-hmm. her tuning up and and <laughs> and the growls. It was just so it was so grounded. That is one person who whose performance, like you said, you knew somebody like her. To this day, you can literally give her a name of somebody you know because. That's what you saw her as. And she just did an excellent job at that. She definitely did an excellent job. My, my hat goes, goes off to her. And it's such a great ensemble. They all work so well together. And that's really evident in every scene. It's really an ensemble piece. And so I really did appreciate that. Uh, were there any other standout moments for you in the play? I will also say that I love 
again, how delicately he represented the church. A lot of times when church is represented in films or movies or things, there's a certain kind of buffoonery to it. Mm -hmm. There's a certain kind of uh, mimic. It's a uh, buffoonery. I'll stay with that. It's, It's not it's not real it's showmanship it's it's placement it's not that authentic church and one of the things that i appreciated about the play in itself is that they took the time to make sure that those moments were as close to being real as possible if somebody jumped up in the praise it wasn't <laughs> like you didn't know that they were going to jump up in the praise it was we all here at church and so that's the right moment to jump you know it was it was it was believable it wasn't you know, so cartoonish. And that's one thing that I have when it comes to particular movies and plays and things that they make it really, the the church ain't like that. I don't know what church you've been to, but I've been in church all my life. It ain't like that. Yeah. I think that I definitely have seen some things like that where I'm like, that's not real. That's not how it's like. That's not how people really talk or, you know, it seems too polished. And with this, especially even the second time around, the fine details Mm -hmm. were just so real. They were so grounded and they took time a lot of moments breathed and that was very important to make them believable we're not just trying to get the pacing too fast sometimes we're letting it sit in some moments so that it can bring that authenticity and that was uh, really just a joy to be able to see and i think for me one of the things that um i really take away from the performance i mentioned the character of sister Moore, but margaret also goes through a transformation and she experiences so many things and so many things in her life have have shifted, especially, as I mentioned, once her estranged husband comes back. But it's towards the end of the play where uh, there's this brilliant moment where she's shedding or taking off her robe and she's walking into something new. And that moment really is symbolic of the transformation that she undergoes after she's lost many things and that she's had many revelations. She becomes someone entirely new and she finally comes to uh, grasp with what it is that she had been avoiding. And so just embracing the things that have wounded us or broken us and being accountable for uh, those you know places and spaces in our life is just one thing that I take away from the play. What about you? I completely agree with that. There is a moment where she embraces not just correction, but change. She comes to a realization where she realizes she had, may have dropped the ball on a few things, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's still room and grace to grow. And I, I appreciated that, that again, she embraced it. She even embodied it. Even in this performance, one of the things that I liked about it was when she had moments where she was actually preaching, it was believable. Some of it was contextually unsound, but it was believable. <laughs> it wasn't fair, but it was believed. She she believed, you know, her stance and her place. And you can see as the play goes on and on that she's starting to challenge some of the things that she believes. And sometimes if you are in I won't say sometimes when you are in God, God will always challenge you on a few things to a point where you are correctable and given the space to change that there are some thoughts that you can have 10 years ago that may change now. And that's fine. That comes with a part of embracing the grace to grow and being okay with that. The one that she could have been bitter, you know, about her experience, but she takes it as an opportunity to say, you know what? I did miss it here. And I appreciated that. Yeah. And it's a clear example. There's nowhere that God's love can't reach us. 
And um, I enjoy her journey because it's definitely a testament to that. And I do appreciate, again, that the entire production, it was very just inspirational. And it's great, great to be back in the theater again. It's a sign that things are opening back up again. We're returning to some kind of normalcy. Um, and hopefully we'll be bigger and better than what we were before. So again, you know, if any of you are in the D.C. area, definitely check out this play. It's running until September the 26th. Great performances. It's a great experience. And we hope you all found value in our conversation today. And we look forward to being back with you all again on next Tuesday. Stay connected to us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Search for the name of our platform, Our Father's Table. And any questions, comments, or show ideas can be sent to vantagepointpod at gmail.com. Before we go, it's time for Fields of Vision, the segment of the show where we highlight a quote or text to help encourage and inspire you. Stepping into the calling God has for you has nothing to do with who you are or what you can do, but rather who God is and what he will do through you. The Paul's Pursuit. And that does it for us here today at Vantage Point. I'm Troy Jennings. And I'm Aaron Pope. We thank you for joining us and look forward to you joining us again on next Tuesday. Until we meet again, friends, be well.